You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. I have a distinct memory growing up from a road trip. Our mom was driving, it was late at night, and she had the radio on, and she was listening to a program where people called in and they asked for relationship advice from a woman named Delilah. No, you, okay, that's fine. Has anyone, has anyone heard the show? Does anyone know the show Delilah? Okay, a few, okay, okay, great, great, great. Great, everybody like older than 25 or 30 is like, has heard of the show. Okay, uh, so it's a radio show. It's a radio show that goes from 7 p.m. to midnight every night. And it's where Delilah, the host, uh, she'd, do, she'd do some DJing, she'd tell some stories, she'd answer questions. Uh, and here, here's a description of the show from uh, the website. This is their own, this is their own description. <clears throat> Delilah's distinctive blend of storytelling, sympathetic listening, and encouragement, all scored with the temporary, adult contemporary soft rock, makes her top-ranked in most markets among women 25 to 54. She says her show is a safety zone where listeners take off their armor, slip into a Mr. Rogers cardigan, sit around the electronic hearth, and share their secrets. Now, okay, let's be honest. Who's listened to the show and loved it? Okay, we've got about four honest people in the church right now. So my, my mom loved the show. <clears throat> I, I think it was a little bit of a guilty pleasure for her. And I say that because I think that it was only when she was sure that we were all asleep, that she would turn it on in the radio, right? And you know, this, this type of program has been around forever. These are the call-in advice shows. You know, maybe you didn't want relationship advice. Maybe you wanted car advice. And you call into Car Talk. Has anyone heard that show? Car Talk, okay, all right, better mix. Car Talk, you know, comedy and cars, great. The two brothers, classic. Or maybe, more of a financial person, We'll call in and talk to Mr. Dave Ramsey himself. We we'll get some money advice, right? Ross Brown, that's for you. Basically, whatever kind of advice you want out there, there's advice for you. There's an advice show for you. It's because we love advice, don't we? It's classic. It's a classic thing. And I don't know if you know this, but uh, advice columns, like in the newspaper have been around for almost as long as uh, printed newspapers have been around. So since the late 1600s. The very first one is called the Athenian Mercury. It's an advice column. And the creator thought, what an awesome opportunity to get information in the hands of the people. And they would write in questions about science and astronomy and technology and and weather and these kinds of things. And, And he would get the best scientists that he knew to speak to these subjects. And then basically, as soon as it starts, people start calling in, or well, writing in, for relationship advice. And before they know it, the Athenian Mercury shifts from science from the leading scholars to relationship advice for people. And it's a classic thing. It's so classic, right? I was doing research on this, digging up articles. I found this. It's an article from the 60s, about 68, 69, called Dear Abby. 
and it's uh, uh, a woman that people would write in their questions to, usually teenagers. She's really popular with the teens and parents of teens. And uh, I've got an excerpt from one here, and I'll read it for you. It's from late 60s. Dear Abby, I'm a girl who will be 16 in two months, and my mother finally agreed to let me go in cars alone with boys. Well, to make a long story short, this real neat kid who was 18 asked to take me to a drive-in movie last Friday night. And I was on cloud 16 because I've loved him for a long time. My mother said I had to be in by 12.30. Well, at exactly 12.22, we pulled up in front of the house and we started to talk. And it was 2.10 before we noticed what time it was. Boy, did we ever say goodnight fast. Abby, I swear to God, all we did was talk, but I guess my mother doesn't believe me. Now she's grounded me for a whole month. Do you think this is fair? How can I get my mother to give me another chance? And this is from Grounded. And Abby wrote back, Dear Grounded, in means in the house, not in front of it. I think the penalty is a little too stiff for the crime, but since you're such a great talker, maybe you can talk your mother down to two weeks. So clearly, getting and giving advice is so classic to the human condition. It's so natural for us to elicit advice from people that we think are more successful or wiser than us. And and I think that when we read passages like ours today, when we read a lot of the Bible, it's easy to think that this is another advice letter. Like the Philippian Christians, they loved hearing from Paul so much so they wrote him. They asked for advice. You know, Paul, which boys should we talk to? You know, how should we invest wisely? What should we do if our chariot breaks down? That's not what this is. Sure, Paul is writing to a specific group of people, and he's telling them things that they ought to do and ought not to do. But it's not just simple advice. You know, a pastor and an author, he said this about Christianity, about the Christian life. He said, we as Christians are not in the advice business. We are in the news business. And that's what we're looking at today. We're looking at more news. Because the truth is that real news almost always changes something. It leads to action. It changes how we live our lives. And so what we're going to do today with this deceptively pragmatic text is we're going to pull back. We're going to zoom out a little bit. We're going to look at the context. And then what we do, we're going to see is that Paul is telling these believers three things. First, he says, remember and stand firm in our future hope. Second, live like you remember it. And then third, remember why we have hope. So I'll just say it again. First, remember and stand firm in your future hope. Second, live like you remember it. And third, remember why we have hope. So let's pray. (coughs) Lord, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gracious gift it is that you've spoken to us through your word. And we just pray that as we sit in the teaching of your word, that you would open our ears and eyes and hearts to what you've got for us, Lord. We just pray that we could be a people who are so shaped by your gospel that we reflect you and reflect Christ more. We pray that as we think about our future hope 
and think about what it means to live in light of it, and think about why we even have hope. We pray that you would bless our time and ingrain these truths deep in our hearts, Lord. We love you, and we thank you for all that you give us. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts, Lord, would be glorifying to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So first, let's look at our future hope. So we're going to look back a few verses for our passage today. Our passage today is uh, 4, 1 through 3. So we're going to go back two verses, what was just on the screen, and we're going to look at the context. Now, I'm not going to rehash this whole sermon. Uh, two weeks ago, Zach preached on this, and, and if you haven't heard it, go on the podcast, uh, go on the Slack channel, listen to it. It's good. And it sets the stage for what we're doing today. Uh, I just want to draw your attention to these two verses here. So if you want to turn to your Bibles uh, to Philippians 3.20 with me, we're going to read these two verses. It's going to be on the screen too. 3.20-21 through 21 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. So three things really quick that we want to see from this. First, that first part right there, our citizenship is in heaven. We're citizens of a different kingdom. Second, we await a savior, Lord Jesus Christ, so we believe that Jesus will come again. And third, when he comes, he will transform our bodies to be like his. And so ultimately, this is the hope. This is the hope that I was talking about. We have hope that if Jesus came the first time, and if he promised that he would come again, then we can trust him. So why do we have hope? Well, the picture here is that because our citizenship is in heaven, it means that we're citizens of another kingdom, another nation, right? And then we believe then that Jesus will come back for us because... The good king always comes back for his citizens, right? And then we know that ultimately, when he comes back, he's going to right every wrong, fix every brokenness, and heal every wound. And it's a beautiful reminder, and I hope it warms your heart like it does mine. But what we have to see is that this is not just another reminder for the warm fuzzies. This is a promise. This is a promise that you can take to the bank. In fact, that's exactly what Paul wants us to do. See here in in verse 1 of chapter 4, see how our verse starts. The first word, therefore. Okay, if you've been in the vine for a little while, you know where I'm going with this, so please play along. Whenever we see therefore, we have to ask, what is the therefore? Thank you, thank you. Exactly, exactly. So we see the therefore. What is the therefore there for? Paul is connecting the hope that we have that Jesus is coming again for us and the promise that he's going to make everything new to the life that we live now. He's saying that because we know that Jesus is coming back for us, it changes how we live, and it changes what we do. And so let's read. 
in verse 1 what Paul says we ought to do. It says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So therefore, because you know all of this about Jesus, that he's coming again, therefore, stand firm in the Lord. And so here's the question. What in the world does that mean? It means that if you really do believe that Jesus came and that he is coming again, and that when he comes, every wrong will be made right, every hurt healed, every brokenness fixed, then you should stand firm in that belief. You know, the, the phrase that I said earlier, take it to the bank, it's like that. It's like that phrase is like the idea that you could take this to the bank. This is so secure a thing that it's as, it's as secure as the money in the bank vaults. It is concrete. It is happening. And just like that, Paul is saying you can count on Jesus coming back and making everything right. And how do we know that? Well, because of his resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead, and he promised that we would too. And you see in verse 21, it's the same power that allows him, that allowed him to raise from the dead, that is the promise that we will too. See this part here, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So the idea is that the power of the Holy Spirit that allowed for his resurrection, is the same power that enthrones him as the king of heaven, is the same power that will raise us up on the last day. Paul's saying it's all connected. Because Jesus rose from the grave, he is enthroned as the king of heaven. Because he rose from the grave and is the king of heaven, he will come back for us and we will rise too. So the idea is, if we have a good reason to believe that, we got to act like it. Paul is basically saying, hey, if you believe Jesus rose from the dead, then you can trust that he's coming back for you. And you can put your trust in him. So the question then, of course, is what does it look like to put your faith in the Lord? What does it look like to put your trust in him? To stand firm thus in the Lord? Well, I think it can look like a lot of things. For example, maybe because you have hope in a resurrection, we can face our sufferings in this life with more boldness. Or, or maybe because of the resurrection, we can take more risks in our lives to share the gospel. Or man, maybe it just looks like when we wake up every day and you look at that calendar ahead of you, you know that you can press on this race, this marathon, because you know the reward is waiting at the end. Now, what I hope you don't hear, I'm not saying this life doesn't matter. That's, that's not a biblical concept. What I'm saying is that this is a piece of the puzzle. This is a piece of the whole picture. What I'm saying is that Paul thinks we ought to be looking at our daily lives in light of eternity, in light of the promise that Jesus will come again. We should think about everything in light of that. 
So we're going to go on, and we're, we're going to talk about what that means for us. We're, we're talking about what Paul says that means. But first, let, let's remember. Let's remember what we said. All of this that we're talking about today, all of this is based on the hope that we have. This is not advice. This is not wisdom. Don't hear me telling you what I think you ought to do because it's good wisdom or good advice. It's none of that. This is news. It's good news. Jesus rose from the dead. It's a historical fact. And if that's a historical fact, if it's true, and it is, then it changes how we live. And we have hope because of it. And it's because of that hope that we should stand firm in the Lord. And so what does Paul have in mind? He's going to ask these Christians, he's going to say, hey guys, I want you to start a new campaign. You're going to reach the whole world. You're going to evangelize everybody. It's going to be incredible. Or just say, okay, I want you to start six new orphanages. I don't want a single person to go without a parent to care for them. Or just say, hey, I want every single one of you to be in chains for the gospel like I am. Remember, we've read that. No, Paul has something much more mundane in mind. Let's keep reading our passage. Look at verse 2 with me. He says, In light of all that, stand firm in the Lord, and I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Santike to agree in the Lord. And so there it is. In light of the promise that Jesus rose from the dead, in light of the fact that we have new life if we put our trust in him, in light of our citizenship in heaven, in light of all the glorious things you can ever imagine, Paul says, you guys got to get along. And here's where I think this sounds like an advice column, right? Like someone from Philippi wrote Paul, dear Paul, two of my friends at church just are not getting along lately and it's really bothering me. Whatever should we do? But I'll remind you, this is not advice. Paul has declared a truth and now he's saying how we live in light of it. Paul is saying that the hope that we have in the gospel should change our lives. And that changed life is what he's talking about right here. You know, all throughout the book of Philippians, Paul has talked about unity over and over. He's kept hammering home the same point about unity. In fact, Zach named this series Unity in the Gospel in the Midst of Suffering. Clearly, this is a huge theme, right? And so here, Paul is singing that same song of unity again. But it's this time, it's a slightly different verse. This time, instead of just encouraging unity in general, hey, be of one mind, like chapter 2, verse 2. Or, hey, I entreat you in the Lord to, to be unified. Instead of just abstracts, he is talking to two specific women. And he is saying, be unified. Literally, agree in the Lord. It says, be of the same mind in the Lord. So the, the idea is that this is where the rubber meets the road with the gospel. He's saying that because you believe these things, you ought to live this way. This is not just abstract commands or platitudes. 
Can you pull up 20 and 21 on the screen? He's saying, Yodia, Sintike, you see this, right? You believe that Jesus will come again, right? So then, live as if you do. And what does that mean? Be of the same mind. Agree with each other. Settle this feud. I want to draw your attention to two things in verse 2. I'm going to read it again. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Santike to agree in the Lord. I'm going to draw your mind attention to two things. First, this last part to agree in the Lord. And I think what we should see here is, is Paul is not saying that they should get along like just because it's the right thing to do. You know, he's not saying that they should stop fighting because this is causing problems for everyone or it's causing disruption. I mean, these things are true, but that's not why he's writing this. He says, agree in the Lord. He's saying that they should come together and overcome their differences, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because they're both in the Lord. The idea is that if if they both put their faith in Jesus, they are unified already, because they're both citizens of the same kingdom. They both have King Jesus as their king. They both put their trust in him. They both await his return. They're both now a part of his one body. And they believe that he's coming again, and he's going to make all things right. He's going to reconcile everything. He's going to restore all things. And so Paul says, hey, guys, if you are united because of Jesus, then that is why you need to act united. And I think this is an important thing we should see from this passage. This is not about conflict mediation in the abstract. This is not just Paul saying, oh, everyone should get along. Oh, you know, it's so much nicer this way. No, this is Paul saying, hey, you two, this is not who you are. So act like who you are. And the second thing I want you to see is the stakes. And the stakes are high. Let's read this last verse together, verse 3. We'll see how high the stakes are. He says, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored by my side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. What we should see here is Paul is pulling out all the stops. He is appealing to other people in the church of Philippi to step in and help these women mediate their conflict. He's saying that these women labored with him in the gospel, which either means that they were missionaries with him, or maybe they went out in Philippi with him preaching the gospel, or at the very least that they were like financial supporters of his ministry. But either way, Paul is saying these guys have a stake. They have a, they have a, a, a claim to his ministry work. They're part of it. They're stakeholders in his ministry of the gospel. And this is why the stakes are so high. See, for Paul, this isn't just a conflict that needs resolving. 
You know, sometimes we can look at conflict in the church and we can say, you know, this has a chance of tearing the church apart or destroying it, and, and th- these things can be true. But I think this is not why Paul is so worried about it. What I, what I think we should see is that the whole, it's the whole community's responsibility to step in and to help these two specific women resolve their conflict because this is a gospel issue. Here's what I mean by that. You know, like I said a few times already, the picture here is that because these two women believed in the gospel, they believed the promise that Jesus would come again and that it should change how they live, it should mean that they both recognize whatever differences they have or whatever either of them did to hurt or wrong the other, it doesn't compare to the unity they have in Jesus already. And if they believe that, then they should be willing to resolve their conflict with each other. Does that mean, like, it's as simple as Paul says, get over it? No, I don't think so. In fact, he wouldn't bring other people into the mix if it were that easy. There's probably real hurt and wrong that needs resolved here. But I think that's the point. Because of the gospel, we do that. We resolve real hurts and wrongs with each other. Because we're all citizens of another kingdom, because we're all awaiting our Savior to return, and because we all have hope that when he comes, he will make new glorious bodies for us, we don't just let conflict sit. We don't just let bitterness fester. Because we know that King Jesus comes back, and then when he comes back, he will make all things right, we work now to make all things right with each other as best we can. See, the, the problem with Euodia and Sintike is not just that they have conflict. It's that they are not resolving it. Because it's natural when you're doing life together that you're going to have conflict, right? It's the human experience. But because of the gospel, we resolve that conflict. Because of King Jesus, we do something about it. So we've seen how we need to stand firm in our future hope. We've seen how standing firm in that future hope certainly means living away right now. A way of resolving conflict with brothers and sisters in Christ. And now what I want us to see is, why can we have that future hope? Why do we live in a different way? And I want to turn your attention to this last part of verse 3. It says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. That last part there, whose names are in the book of life. Probably if you've, if you've read in your Bible, if you, maybe you've come across in your Bible reading th- this phrase before, book of life, or, or maybe you grew up in the church and you heard this phrase thrown around and uh, people talk about it like it's not a weird thing to say. This is a recurring theme in the Bible. 
the book of life. It starts in Exodus. This is some of the first examples we get of this. And, and it carries all throughout to Revelation. It's a theme throughout the whole Bible. The book of life is a record that God keeps of the people that are his. And sometimes I think it's easy for us to think about this book of life a lot like we think about Santa Claus's naughty and nice list. Like, like every person's name is in there and, and God writes, you know, naughty or nice. Like, are they going to get that Nerf gun they want for Christmas or is it just cold this year? But that's not what this is. It's the record of God's people. It's the book where God writes down those that belong to him. And it's the list of people who will be raised up with Jesus in the last day when he returns. I know that it's, this is still, for a lot of us, kind of a weird idea, right? The book, the names in it. But I, let me tell you this story. It really helped me. Recently, probably a couple years ago, my mom found uh, a Bible that belonged to her father. When she found it, you know, she, she forgot that she had it. He'd passed away in like 10 years ago now. She was looking through this Bible, and she flips open the first page of the cover, and instead of a section that has, you know, dedicated to so-and-so on this date, there was a family tree. And the family tree went back generations. It, it followed his, uh, great, his great-grandparents coming over from Sweden and England, and it followed his whole family history. And it, and it was the, the whole family tree of the Hollingsworth family dating back like 100 plus years. And so this Bible has written in it the name of the Hollingsworth family for generations. Friends, that, that's the picture of the book of life. It's like a family record that God keeps. He's not up there in heaven looking down angrily, writing naughty next to our names, or, or reluctantly writing nice. This is a picture of a proud father writing out his family tree throughout all of history, carefully recording the names of every single one of his millions of children in there. He pours over that book lovingly, and he always comes back to the one name in the book that makes it all possible, the name of Jesus. See, friends, the picture of the book of life is that because of Jesus, we can be included into God's family. Because Jesus, being himself God, was not content staying far off, but came to us. And he lived the perfect human life, and he died the death that we deserved. And on the third day, he rose from the grave. When he went back to heaven sometime later, he promised that he will return. And that when he returns... He will give us the glorious, recreated bodies like his. He promised that he would bring us all back home with him. Because like we read earlier, yes, he is our good king, and the good king always comes back for his citizens. But he is so much more than that. He is our family. And family always comes back for family. So what does that mean for us today? 
Well, for Yodia and Sintike, it meant they needed to resolve their conflict because that's what family does. Family resolves conflict. And maybe for you and me, it means the same thing. Maybe there are believers in our lives that we need to resolve conflict with because you resolve conflict with family. Or maybe it means that you need to consider your brothers and sisters in Christ just that, brothers and sisters. Maybe that changes how you start to think about the other Christians around you. Or maybe it means that you need to spend more time leaning on your brothers and sisters like you do on family. Because you remember that even Jesus, when he came to earth, humbled himself and depended on others and served the people around him. But whatever it is you do, whatever you hear from this, do not hear advice. This is not advice. This is not good advice from one person to another. This is not wisdom. This is not advice. This is news. This is good news. Because as Christians, we are not advice people. We are news people. And the news is that Jesus rose from the dead. And so we ought to live differently. And because of that, because he rose from the dead, the good news is that we have been adopted into his family. And if we trust in Jesus, we are in his book of life. And so because of that news, let's live differently. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that our names are in your book of life because of Jesus, that you've loved us so much that you did not, you did not stay far off, that you came to us. Like Philippians says, Lord Jesus, that you being in the very nature God, you did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but instead you emptied yourself and came to us. And we thank you, Lord, that you lived the perfect life, you died in our place, and that you rose again, and that we have hope in the future because of this historical event. We thank you, Lord, for all that you give us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.